Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to Benjamin Wood. He's just published his fourth novel, The Young Accomplice, and is also a creative writing lecturer at King's College London, so there's a lot to talk about. Uh, We chat through why he needs separation between work and creativity. Also, why from all the creative pursuits that he's tried, it is writing that's stuck. And we learn what he needs to know before he starts writing. I always like to know uh, two things about the plot. One, how uh, late can I arrive into the story? So how much of um, the drama that precedes the story can I cut past and and then fold into the the story as it's unravelling? And the other thing is, what is the most dramatic point of action? Where am I steering the novel towards? There is more on the way with Benjamin Wood in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along to Writer's Routine. Hello, thank you for being there. My name's Dan Simpson. This is where we take a look through an author's working day to find out how they take an idea, where they sit, when they work, how they do all of that to get the book done, to get it out and published so you can read it. Now, this week's episode is sponsored by Waiting for Jetpacks. It's a collection of short stories by the author John Lockhart. There are 13 short stories in the set. Now, if you're into stories of dystopia, I guess you'd call it, things that deal with technology and artificial intelligence and space travel, if you ever ask the question... What if this were to happen to me? Um, This is the perfect book for you. All the stories are set in versions of our world that are slightly different, but you can see yourself and where we live in them. Now, it reads spectacularly. It's beautifully written. It's sharp. It's smart science fiction. And now John wrote it during lockdown after an idea that came to him eight years before And he thought it through, took time to work things over. And then during the break uh, of lockdown, he he used that time wisely to write, to be creative. There's a lot of creative talk in this episode and, and John has done that. He used that moment, that pause to get the book down. Now, having a look at this book, Waiting for Jetpacks, is a, a, a way that you can support 
fantastic authors who listen to this show. John has self-published it as well, making it available on Amazon and on Kindle Unlimited for just a fiver. A fiver for 13 stories. It's great value. If you're into supernatural thrillers, something that makes a comment on the world using science fiction, if you like uh, Black Mirror and The Twilight Zone, things that push the edges of reality like that, that still take what we know but give them a twist, um, things that make a comment on society, I, I think you'll really enjoy this book. It's a brilliant way to support the writing community. Just 13 short Easily digestible, sharply written, really thoughtful stories just to get you wondering. If you've ever read John Wyndham's stories, remember those? Uh, This is for you. It's called Waiting for Jetpacks. Now, John was offered publishing contracts, but chose the path of self-publishing to get control over how it was marketed and presented and distributed And he's currently working on uh, his first full-length novel, looking to get that published too. And at just a fiver for a copy online, a fiver for 13 brilliant short stories, you can even get it on Kindle Unlimited. It's a fantastic way to support John, who has uh, taken these ideas, worked on them and written them through lockdown and then published them alone. Uh, I don't think you'll be disappointed. Have a look online. I think you'll really love... These short sci-fi stories. And there's 13 of them. You don't need to read them all in one go. You can spread them out. You can tease yourself through them. The collection is by John Lockhart and it's called Waiting for Jetpacks. Now this week we are chatting to Benjamin Wood. He's been shortlisted for the Costa First Novel Award and the Commonwealth Book Prize. Also the CWA Gold Dagger and the European Prize for Literature. Uh, And he's picked up some prizes along the way. He was also a finalist for the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year and currently lectures creative writing at King's College London. He's just published his fourth novel, The Young Accomplice, which focuses on Joyce and Charlie siblings who have just been released from Borstal which is kind of a young deten which was kind of a young detention center this was back in 1952 and they start a new life as apprentices in architecture well they mean to and then it all starts going wrong when a menacing figure from Joyce's past creeps back into her world and they start slipping back into their old life the one that led them to be criminals uh, we talk about why he uses longhand to get a different angle on the story. Also, his intrigue in the Borstal system that led to him writing this novel. Uh, Why he thinks that routines and plans for writing are very helpful. Also, why he needs separation between work and creativity and how that is affected where he lives and his journey into work and actually uh, where he makes his money. We talk about what creative writing lectures actually do. I've always been curious about this. We've spoken to uh, authors who have been to the lectures, but to speak to someone who teaches them, I had a great time picking his brain about that. And we get into it, as we always do, with Benjamin Wood and what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. I'm in my, um, what I would call my office, which is, I guess, a study room, um, which is at the front of my house, which I've been very uh, lucky to acquire in the last few years. It's a sort of space that's all to myself, which I can uh, keep um, working productively um, when my children are banging on the door, etc. Um, so in front of me, I have um, a lovely 
print of Istanbul, which my wife got for me for my birthday not so long ago, where I spent some time writing my second novel. I've got prints of um, uh, some stills from this, that same book, um, from a, a book trailer, which my brother did. And I've got, you know, my desk, my computer, uh, a sort of range of, uh, in front of me, uh, a range of uh, reference books from, you know, um, dictionaries of contemporary slang to modern, modern American usage, etc. And I've got this old copy of In Cold Blood by Truman Capote in front of me, which I just, I found really inspiring for, for some reason. I always like to keep it in my eye line. And um, I have many sort of trinkets and things, pictures of my children, etc. A pot of pencils, because I often reach into those to either write notes or write longhand occasionally. And um, I have this uh, owl, which uh, my good friend whittled for me, um, which is sort of a, a good luck charm. And yeah, other than that, you know, I have um, a small piano, guitars, books on the bookshelves. And uh, yeah, it's generally a, a quiet space that I can call my own within the house. I know that you're fairly immersed in writing and storytelling, not just being a published author, but also a creative writing lecturer. How much of of, of, of what's around you, or, or more or less, the, 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 how much of the space where someone works do you think is really important? Do you think that's necessary for someone to curate maybe a creative space, or is it, or is it all kind of literal wallpaper that just gets in the way of the nuts and bolts of getting words down? Well, for me, it's always been really important um, to have a space where I feel comfortable and creative. It's become less important to me, um, perhaps, what that context is um, since I've had children, because it's become very difficult to have a kind of partition between the spaces in your life. But I will say that having been a creative writing lecturer for a long time, and um, writing my novels as I've been doing that job effectively full time. It's always been important to me to have a separation between my workspace, which I use for meeting students or um, preparing things or doing administration for the university and my workspace for writing. And I've always liked to keep those two things separate. So my office at King's College London, where I teach, is um, full of books, which I can't fit here in my home office. Um, and it's very much a, a, quite a, I wouldn't say it's clinical, but it's it's a very different feeling space than the space I have to write in, which is um, probably more stamped with my personality and um, the various um, uh, amounts of reading for research I've had to do for various books, uh, fill up the shelves here and lots of sort of um, family stuff, you know, which I like to keep in my eye line and separate from my workspace at the university. It's interesting that they're two different styles. You mentioned your one at work, the office is, is quite clinical and here it's perhaps more more homely. It, it, how much of that is something that you, you wanted to build around you, a, a state of being at home, but being very much stamped with who you are? And then how much does that help the way that you write at home, do you think? I think it helps a great deal. Um, I learned relatively quickly um, into my teaching career because I started 
um, teaching uh, when I lived up north where I grew up. Um, but then I moved down to London to start teaching at Birkbeck. And um, I was living uh, in London for a while or trying to find somewhere that I could live in London and found it difficult. So I ended up living out in Cambridge and commuting in to do the job. And I found that that partition between working in London and living away allowed me separation in my thoughts and in my productivity and creativity. So I, that was something I realized I needed to maintain. And in the, in the periods I've had relatively brief periods in my life where I've been teaching in London and living in London, I found that separation really hard to come by. And it led me probably to the periods in my life where I was the least creative or at least the most thwarted creatively. So I, I figured that out quite quickly and and how important it, it is to my life as a writer. And just run us through the desk then. You mentioned kind of trinkets and perhaps a few books and photos around. Um, but more, what are you writing on? Is it, is it just a, a laptop and what writing software are you using? And also quite nichely, Benjamin, what fonts do you like to use? <laughs> Yeah, that is quite a niche subject, but I understand its importance. Um, uh, so I write, it depends what stage of a book I'm at. In the very early beginnings of a new novel, I really like to write um, longhand at first, just for a little bit, just to try and get the first paragraph. Um, I won't write an entire novel or draft uh, longhand. Um, maybe one day I will, but I haven't so far. I've written long chapters or scenes I've been struggling to imagine, I often find setting down um, like an A4 notepad and just writing them out longhand in pencil gives your creative uh, brain a slightly different angle of incidence on on the scene. So um, I find that really useful. And at the beginning, I'm not sure why this is, but I, I often like to use an old typewriter that I have here. I have this old imperial typewriter, not a particularly valuable one or reliable one, to be honest. Um, but I, I really like the process of machining the words onto the page and looking back at them, pulling them out, you know, of the roll and taking a look at them and then re-machining them until you get this sort of paragraph with a rhythm, with a cadence, with a, with a quality that you think, oh yeah, this has got something in it. So I'll often, at the beginning of a, a new novel, because to me, the most important part of writing anything new is getting the first line, the first paragraph to have the, the, the narrative tone, the, the sense of atmosphere that I want the entire book to convey. So I'll spend sort of a long time doing that, either clattering on the typewriter and really annoying my wife who's trying to work in the room next door or longhand. And then once I've got that paragraph where I need it to be, I'll then write more or less the entire novel into uh, my computer here. I can't really work that effectively on a laptop. I have done before, so I need quite a large screen. So I, I tend to work on a, on a iMac I've got here with a, um, with a nice screen, um, which doesn't hurt my eyes after a long time. Because <laughs> um, when you spend all day in a dark room, you know, staring at a screen, it does tend to give you a headache. So I try and uh, find um, the nicest possible uh, screen to look at. And um, yeah, font-wise, this is an interesting question. Um, I, I really do think that the, the aesthetic quality of the page is an important thing to get right. And I'll often tinker around changing fonts and it's a, 
but I'll never, I can't have a, a sans serif font ever to look at because that I use sans serif fonts for university administration. So I like to have a serif font for writing. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I, I think Gaudi old style is probably my, my, my go-to font of, of the moment. But the thing about that font is that, um, I use a lot of M dashes in my writing and that's a font which doesn't allow M dashes of sufficient length. So I find it a bit frustrating, um, but it is the nicest one aesthetically. Coming to a creative writing workshop for the first time as an undergraduate student, you know, you're doing a lot of more instructive um, teaching. So you're getting them to look at examples of texts which you think are um, effective and, and have achieved various you know effects upon the reader and you're trying to dismantle them so it, it is a process of teaching writers how to read as writers a lot of the time particularly when you're teaching as part of a, an English degree as I do at King's um, then as they get um, more experience so teaching at sort of MA level and as I do now I teach um, PhD level students so they're working on full-length novels with you you know it becomes a lot more more of an um, an acute editorial process. So you're working very much at sentence level. You're giving line edits and you're giving um, comments, you know, on this sort of overview of their project in the way that you might work with an editor. So um, teaching, you say it's an ephemeral thing, but really writing is, to me, is a craft. Um, and that's, you know, how any creative writing lecturer will approach its teaching. It's a craft in the same way that, um, you know, dancing is a craft. You know, uh, I, I believe that everybody um, has a given amount of talent that they're born with. And it's the creative writing instructor's job to help people uh, see that talent, notice where the, the strengths of their own talent are and, and help them to develop the areas um, which they're weaker in uh, and help them to notice them and give them, um, you know, tangible advice to help them construct better sentences, to build better scenes, to deepen their characterization, to structure their work more effectively, um, to find often the most important thing you can teach a fiction writer is how point of view works, the various points of view that are at their disposal and how, you know, at a micro level, you can manage and manipulate the reader's experience in that way for, for whatever effect you want. So it's, it's ephemeral in the sense that, you know, you can't teach somebody to have talent. That is true, but you can certainly teach someone how to get the best out of their talent. How much does it help you to, to constantly be immersed and submerged in, in all different forms of writing? Uh, how much does it make when you're storytelling yourself a bit of a busman's holiday? <laughs> yeah, it can be like that. Um, I've often found that teaching keeps me in the real world, which is really important. Um, I like being able to, you know, go into university, meet people, read what they're up to. And the longer that you do it, the more grounding it is in, as an experience. Um, you there are, there are periods during an academic year where you get swamped by, you know, student work and students, no matter what their um, level, um, always want more feedback from you um, because, you know, that's the nature of doing something creative. Um, you need and, and you, you, you thirst for somebody with an experience to give you their guidance or their advice or, or just their general response to something. So I find... 
however I've managed it over the years, I don't know, but I've developed a way to maintain uh, teaching, maintain looking at student drafts and, and keep my own work private and separate, largely because of, I think that partition that I described before that I was being able to establish my work is at the university. And when I'm at home, I try and avoid as much as I can because emails are always coming in. Uh, you know, I try and, um, use that space as the place I work on my own thing. And the commute time in between London and where I live here means that, uh, I can have this sort of nice moments of separation where I can, if I'm traveling back on the train, I can get my notebook out or I can be thinking about my own work in progress. And then I can arrive at university and leave my creative work there and then travel back home and get back to it. So I guess I've just worked out, yeah, how to manage um, those separations in my in myself. Well, so let's talk about how you manage the day then. The show is writer's routine, Benjamin. So, so run us through yours. How does it look at the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed on a day when you are writing? How does the whole things plan out? It used to be a lot more regular and routine than it, than it is these days. I mean, um, since I've had children and I've, you know, the pandemic uh, in particular was made my writing life and routine completely upturned. And I've just, I think, managed to adapt my day now to a point where I, it doesn't really, the, the idea of a routine matters less to me. What I need are, um, a sustained few periods of, you know, a couple of hours here and there during the course of my day to focus on what I need to focus on. Um, so, you know, it used to be that I would wake up, you know, early in the morning, go for a walk, get a cup of coffee, come back and start my writing day by, you know, 9.30. And, you know, if it was a good day, I would write until one o'clock and stop for lunch and then I'd write again from two until five or six and then I'd have dinner. And if that, if it's still going well, you know, I might say, well, I've written my word count for the day. I've reached a thousand words or whatever. And, um, I'll stop and I'll just, you know, watch a film or read a book or do whatever, uh, people do. And, uh, uh, sometimes I might pick up again and go till 1130 or one o'clock in the morning if it was a great day. Um, these, as I've got older and, and as I've written more novels and sort of my, my writing, um, my approach to writing has, has adapted. Um, I will wake up, you know, when the kids need to wake up to be dropped off at school, I'll get them safely at school or at nursery. My wife will go and do her work in the other room and I'll sit down and do my work. And if that starts by nine thirty, ten o'clock, that's great. And then I'll try and write for as long as I can until I get hungry. <laughs> um, and when it's a great writing day. I don't notice that I'm hungry and I'll, you know, write. And then I'll look at the clock and it's, oh my goodness, it's that time I've got to go and pick up uh, my oldest kid from school. Um, and yeah, you, I've sort of learned to then work more effectively as well in the evening time. So I never used to even attempt writing um, in the evening time, but now I, I've, particularly when I'm on a deadline for a novel or, you know, I'm at the, the closing point of a novel, I will uh, try and use that time between sort of seven thirty, eight o'clock and the small hours of the morning as effectively as I can. Um, I know some writers, when they have kids or when their life changes, they, they 
they get up earlier and earlier to work, but my kids wake up so early as it is, I'm too exhausted to even think about doing anything creative. Uh, how how planned is, is the writing that you are allowed to do that day that you can fit into everything else that's going on around work and, and the children and the family? Do you have like a goal, an aim of what you want to get done that day? Um, again, this is something which changed. You know, I used to set a target for myself, particularly when you're in, in the midst of a novel and you say a thousand words a day is what you need to hit. Now, um, you know, if I write 250 words a day, which I think are of sufficient quality that they're going to stay in the novel um, or there, there or thereabouts. Um, I'll be very happy. So I've learned, I think, to think less about word count and more about um, moving the story, progressing the, the story um, to its next sort of natural leaping off point. So uh, depending on the the novel that I'm writing, so the last novel, The Younger Accomplice, um, has various third person um, perspectives. It's the scope of its narrative time is quite large, starting in the 1930s and ending in the late 1950s. And there's a number of, of elements that I had to control, but it's written from, you know, in quite self-contained uh, chapters, quite long chapters. So I would look as I was writing that to bring the novel, sorry, there's a dog barking outside my window now. Um, I would look to bring the novel, um, you know, to the... Uh, to the next um, moment where the scene had sort of settled down um, into a natural holding point, I, I suppose. So I would write towards those moments every chapter. So I would like to, to get out of my writing day, whatever hours I had, to have known that I've at least taken from taken the character from point A, you know, to point C by the end of my day. And if I did that, I was happy. But most mostly, it's about. Um, me, me being satisfied with the with the quality of the the prose that I've written that day. Um, if I feel like I'm I'm not having a good day of writing, it's normally because I feel like I'm being somehow less articulate or less precise with my words on the page, and they're the days which make me grumpy. Whereas, um, you know, uh, taking taking the the longer view of the novel. Um, I'm less concerned about the fact that I'm not I'm not getting the the story there quick enough or anything like that because I've I think I've learned over the years this is now you know I've written four novels now um, if you don't include the others that I wrote when I was a lot younger which I'll never let anyone see um, yeah I think I've just learned to not to feel really the pressure of of time in that sense anymore because I always know that it will get there that if I have enough days in a row of being um, attuned to the novel in the right way, it will it will end up where I need it to. I think if I have any sort of natural instinct for writing at all, it's the ability to hold the strands of the plot in my head um, so that I don't have to rely too much on, you know, a, a, a very structured plan or knowing what I'm writing per day. It's more that I have a sense of where the novel's going, what the most dramatic moment is that I'm steering the book towards. And I use that as my guide, really, every time I sit down to, to write. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We're back with more from Benjamin Wood in just a sec. This episode of Writer's Routine is supported by Waiting for Jetpacks, a brand new collection of 13 short stories, short sci-fi stories by the author John Lockhart. Now, if you would like your book to sponsor the show... If you've worked on something through lockdown and you've self-published, like John perhaps, uh, you want it to get the fanfare and the plug that it deserves, let me do that for you. All you need to do is really easy. Just get to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash writers routine, and uh, we'll give us some support in turn. doesn't require a lot. A few dollars a month really helps us keep going. It helps us keep bringing you these shows with the best authors around as often as possible. All sorts of authors, memoirists, uh, non-fiction writers, uh, writers that are just getting started, authors that are having their 40th book in a series published. We cover the lot and you can help us keep going. For that, you get our eternal thanks, of course. You get merch. There is even bonus content and there is the way for your book to sponsor this show. All you need to do, help us out, pledge what you can, become a backer at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Right, let's get back to it then. Chatting to Benjamin Wood all about his brand new novel, The Young Accomplice. It's all about Joyce and Charlie looking for a new life after some years in Borstal when someone from their past comes looking to drag them back in. Uh, We talk about why for a creative person, it's the pursuit of writing the craft of telling stories that has stuck for Benjamin. Also, you can hear more about the book, how it came to him, what inspired him, how he worked on it. And we pick things up, talking about how much he knows about the story when he sits down and the challenges that plotting can bring. There are certain chapters where you know there's going to be a, a, a large dramatic action, let's say, that, you, that you're going to end the chapter with. Um, that you you need the characters to do or press a certain point or reach a certain point of argument, let's say, with another character. So a lot of the a lot of the difficulty of writing sometimes is navigating between the quieter moments of the plot and the more um, dramatic moments of the plot. The hardest 
thing about fiction writing to me is giving is finding justifiable reasons for your characters to enter into a room with other characters um and 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 it's sort of writing the between stuff the textural stuff of scenes which which really is quite something finding a a fresh way to you know intersect dialogue is is often uh, stuff which which uh, I spend a long time thinking about, but um, yeah, I would say that um, I don't know. The, the, the more I write, um, the the less pressure I try and put on myself to actually hit sort of markers in the plot. So I'll always have a an sort of an eight instinct for what needs to happen, and. I'll probably review it the next day if I've written a scene the day before and I'll know or the pacing isn't right there. Like this is, why is he spending so long talking about this table where uh, it's unnecessary and I'll, I'll cut whatever 600 words gone um, about tableware or whatever. And then I'll say, well, that's better. That's got better pace now. That's got much more of a narrative engine. That's, that's making the chapter tick along at, at the rate I need it to. Um, and yeah, I, I often sort of feel out a lot of that stuff as I go along, really. On days when the words aren't coming easily, have you, um, and in your, your many years writing and, and lecturing creative writing and being immersed in words, have you, have you learned any tips or tricks that help you out? Maybe a cup of coffee or a, a spot of music at a certain time? <laughs> yeah, there's no limit to the amount of coffee you can drink in a day or number of cups of tea you can have. or um, Those things are, in a, in a practical sense, really useful. I, I tend to, um, if I hit uh, any sort of walls creatively in a project, it's normally to do with not being able to draw the connecting threads of the story together as quickly or as interestingly um as I want to. And so I, I'll spend a lot of time, you know, sitting down really with a notebook. Sometimes I'll put music on and uh, uh, just close my eyes and just get lost in the music and let my brain tick over. I find it's really a good idea to go for a walk, put music on and sort of actively not think about the project that you're working on sometimes. But I've also learned that the answer to a creative conundrum is always present in what you've done before. So, um, you know, anything which is a problem in the plot of a novel, you know, let's say you're three quarters of the way through and, and you realize, oh, there's a, there's a hole here in the plot or there's, a, there's something here which doesn't make sense uh, dramatically. It, enough time spent um, actively thinking about it and um, unconsciously thinking about it the answer will usually surface from the material that you've already produced. It's just a matter of you being able to have the right moment to um, locate where the answer is in what you've already done. And once you do locate it, um, the writing tends to flow again. Um, I think the hardest part about writer's block really is for me has, has not usually been the issue of when there's a problem in the work to fix it's always a more a matter of what do I want to write about or even more alarmingly, why does anyone care about this thing that I'm writing or why does fiction matter at all? Which, you know, were questions which certainly were running through my head 
during the pandemic and you know the, not just for me but for a lot of writers i'm sure now you you can be brutal if you like with this uh, so this show is writer's routine um how important do you think routines are and yeah, like having a set plan and a set time and a word count how important do you think they are or are they just paraphernalia that get in the way of someone actually telling a story oh no i think i think routines particularly in the you know early phases of your writing are really important um and they're still important to me like i like to have a i do like to say okay it's time for, to write another novel now i'm you know i must stop procrastinating so a routine will help me back into that. So, you know, I'll say I'll start at 10. And, you know, if I can do that, I will do it. Um, having a framework, particularly, you know, when you're writing your first novel, um, really important. Treating it like a profession is really important. It's a job that you're doing. It's not, you know, uh, something that you're sort of frivolously, frivolously chipping away at. That's, that is is an important and effective um, tool for getting the thing done. Um Word word count is also sort of important when you're reaching a point with the book where if you have a publisher's deadline, you know, and you need to chart how much time have I got left to finish this thing, and when it when is it expected by um, knowing that okay, well, I can write two hundred words a day and I would make it, or I can write three hundred words a day and I can make it. That's um, that's good. It's 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 productive, but. Um, I would say that the things about writing, which I've learned over the years in terms of routine, have never helped me. And I find them to be, um, I, I've, I don't think they're um, ill-intentioned advice, but I, I do find it to be um, bad advice in general for other writers. So the idea that you have to be writing something every day, um, I really don't think that's true. I think that uh, writers, uh, my writers who I revere or, you know, writers whose work I would admire, um, their process has very much been, um, that as long as you're thinking about writing every day, as long as you're thinking about the project that you've got on the go, as long as you're thinking about the characters in your novel and trying to understand them or reading around the subject of the book that you're writing or doing something which is actively, you know, generating thought or potential material for the book that you're working on. That is a, that's time well spent. Um, even reading somebody else's novel is time well spent. You're still feeding your imagination. You're still uh, learning about the craft. So I don't think that it's helpful to sit down and churn out, you know, a thousand words of garbage <laughs> just to say that you've written a thousand words that day. So that's often the point of advice which rubs me up the wrong way if I hear it. Uh, imparted to anyone at you know a festival or wherever. Well, it sort of came at uh, two separate moments, I would say, uh, quite far apart. Um, I, in writing my second book, I was very interested in the 1950s and came across um, reading about Borstal um, and uh, the the Borstal training system, which uh, was active in Britain at that time. Um, and I did a sort of a lot of reading and into that to see if I go, can I find a character? Can I set something about sort of young offenders in the 1950s? And that novel never really went anywhere. It ended up, a lot of that research ended up going into my second novel, The Ecliptic, which was set in the 50s. 
Um, for my third novel, I really wanted to write about the architect Frank Lloyd Wright. Um, so I spent about a year um, reading everything I could about Frank Lloyd Wright because I'd always find him to be quite an inspiring uh, figure. And, you know, I've, I admire his architecture a lot. So I read a lot about him. I wanted to write a certain type of novel about him, but I it, I just kept hitting a brick wall. I couldn't quite make it. I couldn't place myself within it somehow, and it, it never quite got off the ground. And then when I was sort of thinking about what to write after uh, that book uh, became what it became, um, one day I just sort of dived back into uh, reading about Frank Lloyd Wright again and looked at his um, Taliesin Fellowship and how that started. And it, and I remembered something about the Borstal system and ha- and it struck me how alike the principles were of the two um, institutions. And I realized, oh, hang on, I could, there's a way that I could bridge these two ideas and, and use, the, use that material and craft a narrative around that, around architecture and giving um, young offenders second chances and within the context of this. So, and I got excited and then I realized, I think probably the moment which really made me realize there's a novel here was when I read back and found that Frank Lloyd Wright had visited London to give a series of lectures in, in 1933. And I thought, well, I could have a character in that room and, uh, and, and take it from there. And that was probably the first moment that I tried to draft as a, as a scene, um, which whether, whether novel really, yeah, located itself. It's it's quite an interesting one to take these disparate ideas and manage to work a narrative around them. How hard was it to get a, a, a thrilling, kind of page-turning, thought-provoking plot that runs through the idea of architecture and someone who's not been around for a little while and the idea of Borstal and kind of weaving these together? Yeah, I mean, my impetus was really to write about um, goodness and, and, and people who try and do good things and um, how sometimes that goodness can be thwarted by, you know, a kind of inherited uh, sense of, of um, I don't know, uh, tragedy somehow or, or inherited um, difficulty. Um, and so I, I realized that I could write about um, an architect who had been inspired by Frank Lloyd Wright um, before the war and had gone off to war and had returned from the war feeling differently about his uh, profession than he did before he left. And, and Arthur Mayhood became that character. And, you know, I realized his past could be he went to Borstal. And, and so in, ret- in coming back from the war, he might look to give the same sort of chance to someone Again, and that could be his new motivation that he was lacking and lost during the war. And that was how I approached it, really. And then I I came upon the idea of having, you know, two young um, apprentices arrive at the the place that they had started up, um, a place called Leventry, which is entirely invented uh, in a part of Surrey, as I foresee it not far down the road from me here. Um, And... Yeah, I think once I had those two competing agendas and motivations, that's where drama naturally um, arrives. Um, once you have characters in in who are competing or in negotiation, where where their um, what they want and desire for themselves either elide or 
push against each other, that's where um, you can develop kind of dramatic fireworks, I suppose. And um, yeah, once I once I've once I'd figured out those motivations and the 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 place where I could set them, um, it then becomes a matter of putting those people in the same space and letting them interact. You mentioned right at the start one of the most important parts of writing a novel you find is is that the first line the first paragraph getting the tone right how much work did you do with the young accomplice and mind mapping i guess before you started typing that first sentence yeah um quite a bit i mean i needed to know enough about the period enough about the two things that i was writing about so um you know the borstal system architecture Frank Lloyd Wright uh, and the, that period, you know, 1930s through to the 19, uh, late 1950s, I needed to do a lot of research. And, and once I have feel like I've got myself, um, I've got my brain fed with enough factual information, I, I start to feel instinctively that I can imagine these spaces um, with a sense of verisimilitude that I wouldn't have had without the research. Um, if you can get that from doing sort of field work, it's even better. If you can go and walk in a place, um, you know, if you're writing a contemporary novel set in say Coventry and you, you can take yourself, if you've never been to Coventry and with a notebook and, you know, a camera and record the sounds of that, that, that feeds your writerly imagination. And it gives you this, um, raw material to develop fiction from. I couldn't do that obviously with this because I wasn't alive and I can't return. I don't yet have a time machine to go back to those places. But um, what I could rely on was um, more of a sense of just understanding where these characters are coming from. And and I could start to pluck things from my own life too. Um, you know, the parts of this borrow quite a bit from the life of my grandfather um my grandparents in particular and uh you know there's lots of stuff about liverpool uh, i grew up in merseyside and um the stuff about um architecture which is something i, I i've never uh, been good at but i've always been interested in and read about so um yeah i i i find that it's a there's a there's a, a meeting point somewhere between what I do instinctively as a writer and what research allows me to do as a writer. Now, you, you, the characters that you've got in this book all, all, all seem fairly different. You've got the uh, siblings, you've got the architects, and they're all from a little while ago. What methods are you using to really inhabit these characters, to get to know them very well in order to make their voices different enough to, to tell this story? Yeah, I don't know if I necessarily apply any methods. It's just um, imaginative projection, you know, kind of empathetic projection. I try and perhaps as an actor would in some ways, I try and think who is this character in this moment in time? What is he or she thinking? What is um, prepossessing them? And I also think where are they in the timeline of the book? What are they carrying into the scene? What knowledge don't they have yet? And I just try and inhabit that space with them. Um, and I try and, you know, project myself as much as possible into that viewpoint. But then I also have this um, other 
um, viewpoint too, which is the author's viewpoint, the one who's in control of their actions, the one who's trying to temper the story with a kind of um, dramatic quality or and even an aesthetic quality sometimes. And I allow as much as possible the, the character's viewpoint to drive the writing and then let the author's viewpoint and the editorial viewpoint uh, after that uh, reinvestigate the same scene. So yeah, that's uh, that's not really a method as much as it's just sort of an instinct or, or, or an approach that I've learned is effective or I'm not sure I could do it any other way. If there are any other methods, please let me know. <laughs> <laughs> Quite often authors will describe the process of writing a novel as going on a road trip. You might know from A to B where you're headed, but you're unclear of maybe what road you're taking, when you're turning left, when you've got a diversion. At what point are you seeing what's next through your your windscreen? When does the next plot point become quite clear to you? Yeah, um, I think I always like to know uh, two things about the plot. One, how uh, late can I arrive into the story? So how much of um, the drama that precedes the story can I cut past and and then fold into the the story as it's unraveling? And the other thing is, what is the most dramatic point of action? Where am I steering the novel towards? So in the, in your road trip analogy, which I think is, is a good one, um, I, I like to... I do what the equivalent I would say of knowing where I'm going, where I want to go, what my destination is, looking at the roadmaps um, when people still use paper maps uh, for things, looking at all the, the markers that I needed to hit, what junctures I needed to take, and then just sort of putting the maps away. And uh, if my journey deviates or if I miss any of the landmarks I wanted to see on the way, or um, if it takes me somewhere that's perhaps uh, more long-winded and perhaps more interesting or unexpected, I'll allow it to go there as long as I reach my destination and as long as the the, the path to it is um, sufficiently engaging. And lastly, I mean, as a, you know, a writer, published four books, uh, been shortlisted many times, won awards as a creative writing lecturer. What is it about stories and words that immersed you? Uh, what made you think, oh, this is this is my playground. This is where I'm meant to be. That's a good question. I don't know, really. I mean, I've always been a kind of aggressively creative person. Um, it's how I find meaning, really, in the world and, and, and in life in general. So... Um, Words have been the thing that I am always, I've always felt I'm able to understand and and control um, to a good effect. So, you know, I spent a long time in my youth as a musician and songwriter and, it, and I realized that I was not a very good musician um, and uh, I could, I could make the guitar do what I wanted it to do to a certain point. But I could always make words do what I wanted them to do um, as long as I sat there and tinkered with them for long enough. And I think that's that's something I've carried through into my writing career in fiction. And 
I know that um, one of the frustrations I had as a songwriter or a musician was that if I went into a recording studio, I could never make it sound like I wanted it to in my head ever because I didn't have the technical ability to do it or the ability to tell somebody how to achieve what I heard in my head. But with fiction, I think that's probably the closest um, I can get to having a vision for something and being responsible for, um, you know, moving around the, the pieces of it to actually make it as close to the vision that you had as possible. You never achieve the exact vision, but um, I feel as a sort of control freak about these things better about myself that um, I'm in charge of, I, I'm, I'm the only one responsible for messing it up if it doesn't uh, get where I want it to be. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much to Benjamin Wood for coming on the show. You can grab a copy of his brand new novel, The Fourth One, The Young Accomplice, right now. Next week on the show, we are chatting to Emma Bamford, journalist and memoirist about her debut novel. It's called Deep Water. She's joining us next week. In the meantime, you can support the show, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. You can give us a follow on Twitter. We're at writers pod there. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and you can get in contact uh, over at writers writersroutine.com this week's episode of writers routine has been supported by the brilliant brand new short story collection by john lockhart if you like sci-fi black mirror twilight zone things that take uh, a different slant on humanity and the world as we know it uh, the book is called waiting for jetpacks uh, it's only a fiver online and you can get it on kindle unlimited right now thank you so much to john for supporting the show that book is waiting for jetpacks and it's out now and i'll see you next week with emma bamford on the show until then bye hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.